Good morning. Oh, it's fun to be here this morning. And I know for many of us, we have multiple different reasons for being here, and it's an exciting time in the heart of Santa Clara, in the heart of this church, Church of the Valley. And so I just want to recognize the fact that as we're going to open God's Word today, as, as Gabe just read, we're going to spend time walking through the things that happened in this narrative. And so I want to encourage you to dive deeper. I want you to encourage you to take notes. I want to encourage you to do something with those notes that you take. We're continuing our series on the book of John as we go verse by verse through the book of John, looking at John, who, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who describes the Messiah, describes Jesus as the anointed one, the one who lived, the one who died, the one that rose again. And as he wrote this letter or this gospel, he was powered by the Holy Spirit as he penned these words. We've covered the first chapter of John as we went through the first 18 verses in particular, which were the prologue of the book of John, which it did an amazing job of explaining that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The past two nights, <laughs> I haven't got much sleep. Neither is my wife. In fact, on Thursday and Friday night, we as a family went out to Santa Cruz and we spent a few days there as a family because my wife was doing a 10K race on Saturday morning. And on Friday night, I don't know if you've ever had something planned in the morning, but we were both kind of worried we were going to sleep through the alarm. And so we didn't really sleep very well, and my wife said that every 15 minutes, she was waking up. Ever, anyone ever experienced this? Yeah. And so that was a difficult night, and then she ran the race and did really well, and then the very next day was last night. We knew that this service was coming. It was going to be one service, and on top of that, we were going to have baptisms. And these baptisms we're very excited about, but we also chose to make sure, because we had never done it before, that the baptistry got full and that the water was warm. And you have to spend about three hours filling it before you can use it if you really want it to be full. And so I woke my wife up at 4.30 this morning, and I couldn't sleep, and I was waking up every 15 minutes, and then we got up and got ready and then came here and made sure that the water was warm, and we started to fill up the baptistry. So I guess in a way, that's kind of a disclaimer. If something comes out of my mouth that's kind of what, I'm just telling you, I didn't sleep very much last night. But as, as we talk about just this idea of having a really rough night, not a lot of rest, not a lot of relaxation, I wonder, as we're going to study this wedding at Cana, if this is what the bridegroom was going through, or maybe even Mary, who was a part of the festivities. And so as we look through this text, think about the preparations that go into a wedding, if you've ever had your own, or if you've ever been a part of another one. And let's look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. On the third day, this is a reference to what we studied last week, where John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote about Jesus calling his first five disciples to himself, including Philip and Nathaniel. And now they're in Cana, which was a very small town which Nathaniel was from. And in the small town, there was a wedding which would be a huge deal to the people in this town that didn't really have a lot to do. In this context, a wedding wasn't like what we're used to today, where we usually probably spend about half a day at a wedding. We show up right before the, 
the processional right before the, the bride is going to come down the aisle. But in this context, in this particular area, they would actually celebrate a wedding for close to a week. Jews know how to party, okay? You can write that down. And the groom in particular would be expected to financially provide for his new bride with this wedding festivities, but he would also be expected to generally build a house that was connected to his in-law's home because he wanted to have a closeness to his wife's family for his wife, but he also wanted to show that he could provide for his new bride. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding probably because Mary, Jesus' mom, was involved and was helping prepare for the festivities. But there was also a connection through Nathaniel. He was a local resident. And so at this wedding, you've got Jesus, you've got his disciples, you've got his mom. And Joseph doesn't seem to be talked about. Joseph, Mary's husband. Most people, most commentators would conclude that Joseph had already passed away at this point in the narrative, as he's not addressed or talked about during Jesus' public ministry. But here we see in John chapter 2, and we see that there's something that's going to go awry. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. At this celebration of marriage, drink and food would usually be in abundance, as the groom would be on, on the hook financially to make sure that this wedding was going to go off without a hitch, that there would be a lot of food, there would be a lot of drink to make sure that this party was going and, having, and was a really good time. So much so that if wine in particular was not available and stopped being offered during the festivities, those in attendance could actually bring a lawsuit against the groom for allowing the wine to, to end earlier than the party was supposed to end. Now, as Joseph probably was deceased at this point and was not written about at this wedding, Mary goes to her son, who she knows isn't just any ordinary son, but that he's the son of God, that he is the anointed one, and she goes to him for a solution of a problem. This conversation between Mary and Jesus shows us that Mary had some type of responsibility. There was a closeness to either the bride or the groom. And the fact that she is going to Jesus, whom she knows is the Son of God, demonstrates her faith in her son. Many would argue that Jesus had not demonstrated any supernatural abilities up until this point, a week after being identified as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah. Verse 4, woman. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Does anyone kind of look at this and kind of seem like he's being a little snarky? Woman. Here's the literal translation. What to me and to you? Woman. That's literal translation, almost ESV. Woman. Woman. Woman? See, we don't know tone. And I've said this before, if I could have a superhero power, if I could have a super ability, it would be to understand tone in scripture. And there are assumptions that this in particular was an antagonistic tone or maybe even an insulting tone, but I think that would show that you don't know my God. In fact, woman was more of an endearing term to show respect and care for the one who was speaking to Jesus. So he says, my hour or my time has not yet come. More on that in just a few moments. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Mary, in this moment, demonstrates faith once again, first by going to Jesus, because she knew he could help, and now telling the servants of the wedding to do whatever Jesus says. Servants, you are in good hands, I think she was implying. Servants, you will complete the needed task if you do what Jesus says. Not just listen to him, which many who would pretend to be in the faith do, but actually do what he says. There's this verse, we talk about it a lot here at COV, and it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Deceive yourself is a mathematical term. That is the Greek that is being used, which means to miscalculate. Do not miscalculate your faith. Don't do it wrong. If listening is all that you believe you ought to do when it comes to what God says to you, you've proven not only your ignorance of Christianity, but your disobedience to God. Do not merely hear God speak. How often do we want to hear his audible voice? Do not merely hear God speak, but do what he says. There's a higher bar, Christians. How often do we want to hear from God? We want to hear his audible voice. We want a sign from heaven even though God spoke to us in what we now have is a bound book. But he also spoke to us through a person who was God with skin, telling us what we ought to do in order to be in right relationship with him. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ has already done for us. But when we've met him, we start to do what he says. So you have Mary saying these profound words to the servants. And I know for me it would be easy to think about all the times that the Lord has told me to do something and I haven't done it. Is it just me? I mean, there are lights. Like, okay, so two of you, awesome. But here's what I don't want you to miss. God's love is not predicated on my obedience to him, but it does expose my love for him. You guys see that? God loves me even though I'm messed up, I'm tore up from the floor up, and even though I've sinned and committed cosmic treason against a holy and perfect God, he loves me anyway, and he proved it by allowing his son to die on a cross and rise from the dead. But God's love is not predicated on my obedience to him, but it does expose my love for him. If I say I love him, but I don't do what he says, it means I'm a liar. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, same John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, to do what he says. And his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because we love him, because we have a relationship with him, because we know that what he's done for us. Our obedience to God's word illustrates our love for God himself, and I don't want you to miss that. I don't want us to think that all we have to do is just take notes, say amen, and then leave, but we actually do what God says in his word. Verse 6 of John chapter 2. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. These were very large water jars that could hold over to over a hundred gallons between the six of them, and they were regularly used for ceremonial washings. It was proper for one to wash themselves in the Jewish culture before eating, but many religious Jews took this to another level. They were essentially spiritually obsessive compulsive, if you will. 
They were obsessive compulsive with their washings and would look down on those and judge those who they considered unclean, either because of their bloodline or because they didn't have the correct religious etiquette. Have you ever judged someone because they didn't have the correct religious etiquette? And how easy is it for us those who have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, to take what is a symbol and make it our Savior. Anybody? How easy is it for us to take what is a symbol and make it our Savior? And I don't want to be too clear with this, because if some of you knew what I was referencing, you'd stop listening to what I have to say. But I need you to hear this. Objects that represent worship to us, if they are taken away and somehow curb our enthusiasm of worshiping God, all that does is just prove we're not, we are worshiping an idol, not Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because I want it to hurt. Objects that represent worship to us, if taken away, and they somehow curb our enthusiasm for worshiping God, just prove we're worshiping an idol and not Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Jesus then orders the servants to fill these jars. I wonder if these servants were wondering what was happening in this moment. I wonder if they were wondering if Jesus was going to cleanse himself, which is ironic to me. I think we often think Jesus is saying or doing one thing when he's doing something entirely different. Do you ever experience this? We've discussed at length over the past few months here at COV about how often when a Pharisee or a Sadducee or even generally Jesus' own family would talk to him, that they would talk about the physical while Jesus was talking about the eternal. I think a lot of us have a very elementary understanding of God and his character. And we allow culture, we allow religion, we allow personal preference to dictate how we see God rather than what the word actually says about him, what God actually says about himself. And yet Jesus says, fill those jars. So they filled them to the brim. And I wonder if this is to make very clear to some of us who would then start to think that this was a magic trick or Jesus just adding some water to the wine, but yet there was no room because the water was filled to the top. I wonder how often you and I look at a natural cause rather than a supernatural cause or explanation because most of us are skeptical that God can actually do amazing things today, breaking through the natural laws. I tend to be conservative biblically. I assume you knew that. But when I read scripture and see God moving, I am not only convinced that God spoke and did amazing things in, scriptures, in the scriptures, I believe he's still moving today through his people. Can I get an Amen. And what I notice is that when he's moving, when he's doing things through his people, he intervenes. That's what the Bible's all about, that God decided to intervene. He decided to come alongside us. He decided to take on flesh and walk among us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But often, you and I, we'd rather just start to think it's some natural phenomenon. It's something natural that happened. It wasn't something supernatural but when we see something that's supernatural, when we think that God's moved in some way, hear me, because again, somewhat conservative biblically, we better be able to filter that unexplainable thing through scripture. Because Jesus doesn't show up in our grilled cheese. 
Do you hear me? Verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some water, or some out, and take it to the master of the banquet, the MC, the master of ceremonies. They did so. See, again, I don't know what the servants are thinking in this moment. I'm not sure if they're worried about how maybe they're about to embarrass themselves. I mean, Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do, but they've filled these jars with water. And so they're a little afraid. I've got to assume that they're about to embarrass themselves. Well, here's some water, master of ceremonies. Or maybe they were afraid that it was going to embarrass Jesus or even Mary. But living by faith can be embarrassing, can it? Living by faith can be embarrassing, but if it's rooted in Christ, it will always be beneficial to your spiritual growth. And that's what we want. We want to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. And that means there are going to be times where we have to live by faith. We have to do things in God's economy, not our own. To not go in the same direction as all our peers. To not go in the same direction as all our colleagues or friends. It can actually bring unwanted attention to us. But what I wish I had known earlier on in my life which I, what I wish I had known earlier on about my relationship with God was that he's not a cosmic killjoy, church. But he gave us his word. He gave us his example and his spirit to be obeyed rather than to be fought with internally because I was afraid someone would think that I was too religious or a Jesus freak. Verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Did you catch it? The miracle just happened. Did you guys notice that? And it's not because the master of ceremonies had been hypnotized. It's not because he had been fooled or duped, but because Jesus has the power to change water into wine. Hallelujah. He has the power to change darkness to light. He has the power to take your hurt and turn it into happiness. He has the power to take your anger and to turn it into awe. He can take what is dead and make it alive. Hallelujah. And if Jesus can turn water into wine, he can also turn spiritually dead people into new creations. Can anybody testify to this? And that's the greatest miracle of all. That any of us today would get it. And by it, I mean Jesus. That any of us would go and have the veil torn, have the veil removed from our eyes so we could see Jesus. That we have a relationship with Jesus. That we're no longer dead in our transgressions. We're no longer dead in our religion, which is about us. But we're alive in Christ because we've been made new by what he's done. See, my, my God doesn't need to be obvious to show off. But sometimes he does. Sometimes he does show off. Sometimes he does miracles to give those with the eyes who want to see, to see. How often do people in our lives talk about the change that they've seen in us as a Christian? Or what a good person we are. That's my favorite because I'm terrible without the Holy Spirit. And yet when they say that, they don't realize that it is God doing the work. It is God changing my heart. It is God changing my mind and challenging me to repent and be changed and transformed into his likeness. It is through Christ that our hearts can be turned to him, which is the greatest miracle of all. In fact, later today, we're going to celebrate five people that have had that exact thing happen in their lives. Verse 10, 
Then he, master of ceremonies, the, called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine. That's kind of like the generic box wine. That's what I think it is. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Sorry, I flipped it. But you have saved the best till now. Don't take your takeaway that I like boxed wine, all right? Please don't. The master of ceremonies didn't understand. He didn't understand that this new wine that had come was actually just water a few moments before, but God intervened. The master of ceremonies didn't understand, but it wasn't the point for him to understand. It was for the servants and for the disciples and his mom, those who wanted to see, saw it. They witnessed this miracle they witnessed this miracle, including John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who documented what he saw, what he knew, and so that faith could be demonstrated in this passage through Mary, who believed that her son could help. So much so that she told the servants to do whatever he says, and the servants would actually do what he said, even though it wasn't logical to give jars full of water to the master of ceremony. Let me, real talk, real quick. Christian, if you've committed to Jesus, do you go to Jesus for help? Or do you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? When life starts to get hard, do you try to do things through your own power, or do you do it through the help and the work of the Holy Spirit, which God gave to you? Not so you would try harder, but so you would abide in him. Christian, do you go to Jesus for help? Or do you attempt to do everything in your own strength so you don't have to bother the man upstairs, if you will? See, that's in direct conflict with the gospel. He didn't send his spirit to reside in you so you would do things in your own strength and just try harder, but that you would rely on him. See, this passage, I've heard this passage preached a whole bunch, and it could be construed. And I, usually when I hear people preach on it, there is a lot of conjecture. You guys know what conjecture is? It's where you talk about things that are, have nothing to do with the point, if you will, and you just kind of make up some stuff. And I've heard this passage mishandled. And I've heard this passage mishandled in such a way that people want to put their own agendas into the text. They try to make the wedding out to be something that it isn't. Or to preach prohibition. Or to assume that Jesus was really into alcohol. And here is what I want you to take away. What does it say? What does it actually say? Don't try to force your agenda into the text. Let the cults do that. We don't need to do that. We have the Holy Spirit. So don't try to force your agenda into the text. Don't try to read into things that are not there. Jesus came to the earth to go to a cross. But his time had not yet come at the wedding in Cana. He performed many miracles after this one to make very well known to the world that he was the Messiah. Later on in John, we read right after Jesus said some pretty hard things, and many people who were following Jesus deserted him because they really just wanted to be a fan of Jesus, not a follower. We hear these words in John chapter 7. It'll be on the screen. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, first off, Jesus isn't afraid of anybody, but we'll see why he doesn't go. 
But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Verse 4. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So he's, Jesus is being told by his brothers, you need to go to this place. And Jesus is saying, no, it is not time. His brothers were being logical, and if we're honest, they're being a little bit dismissive. Could you imagine if your sibling told you that they were God? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't believe him either. And they're wanting Jesus to show off if he really is who he said that he is. But they were not understanding what was to come. The beauty of the plan that God had put together using his son. Verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not here, yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus once again looks to the eternal rather than the physical and tells his brothers to go on without him. But then we see as John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, he's telling this narrative, this public ministry of Jesus, and then Jesus spends time with his disciples. He's headed towards something, and we see this in John 17. After Jesus had said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour or the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. The author John shows in the gospel account that there was an order. There was a time and a place for Jesus to do what Jesus was going to do. And in a few weeks, we won't just be celebrating Easter, which is my favorite holiday by far. And it's not because of chocolate, y'all. But on March 30th, at 6 p.m., we will be in this sanctuary, those of us who want to be a part of this, to celebrate Good Friday. And Good Friday doesn't seem like it should be called that, does it? I mean, it's always a personal time for me. Usually when I go to a service on Good Friday, it's dark. And I actually leave wishing Jesus hadn't gone to the cross because I love him. But then I start to realize how ridiculous that is. Because he needed to go to the cross, not just to die for my sin, but to glorify the Father, which he held in highest regard. Jesus didn't come to be your BFF, church. That means best friend forever. He didn't come to be your guru or just your example. He came to be your sacrifice. That's my Lord. And there was nothing that was going to stop his trajectory, if you will, towards the cross. Because glorifying the Father was his purpose. And the cross was the instrument in which the Father chose to demonstrate his grace to mankind, even mankind who didn't get it. Let's go back to John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of many signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
in the past is we've been going through this book, even the first week and the second week, we started, we went to John chapter 20, verse 31, where John explains the point of this gospel letter, the point of why John wrote these words, because he wants people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And as we just saw, Jesus did things that require you to either crucify him as a blasphemer or crown him as King Jesus King. So where do you stand on that? You can't pat Jesus on the head like he's crazy because he did some pretty amazing things which were testified to by many, many people who were willing to go to death for what they believed. So you can't pat him on the head as crazy, and what we see in the Gospels is that he had power. So you have to understand, did he have power from God the Father because he was God, or did he have power from the enemy? What will you do with this miracle worker? Do you believe in him when it's convenient or always? Let me ask a better question. Do you believe him? at his word, not just when you feel guilty, but always. What sign has Jesus, what sign has God done that has made you realize that you're broken without him and that he is the Messiah? Church, I'm, I'm really worried about the church in America, if I'm honest. And the reason I'm really worried about it is kind of one of the things that I say pretty often, I don't want my kids to just believe in Jesus. I want them to believe him. I want them to follow him. I want them to have faith that he is who he says that he is. And even if, even if that creates some tension between me and my children, I want them to know that Christ is Lord, but I cannot convert my kids. I'm not that special. Only God can remove the veil. And so when we talk about believing him, believing his word, it means that we don't get to add to the Bible. It means that we actually have to take what he says and interpret it through the Spirit speaking to us and challenging us and going and talking to people smarter than us and going, what does God mean? I'm so afraid that the church in America is going to spend so much time moving chairs around on the Titanic, if you know what I mean. And so I want us to be a people that don't just hear it, but we actually put it into practice. That we don't just read it to make ourselves feel good. We don't just put Jesus first, but we make him center in all things that we do. I'm excited about today and the proclamation and the declaration of these baptisms of people that have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And I've said this over and over, but the baptisms do not save you. The water does not cleanse you. Only Christ can do that through his perfect life lived, death, and resurrection. And so if you come into this place today, I know there's a lot of family and a lot of friends. You've come to see some people in your life. The reason that they're getting baptized is not to be saved. They already are. They're getting baptized because Christ has changed their life, and they want to show outwardly what they believe inwardly. And so if you've come here today and you're wrestling with who this Jesus is, I'd encourage you to contact me, contact the office. Ask questions. There is no question too big for our God. 
And there's no question that should stop you from following Jesus. If you would reach out to him, I promise you, the word says this, you will find him. But it starts with a humbling of your heart to realize you're not good enough to work your way to God. And he knew that. So he worked his way to you through the perfect life lived in Jesus, through the death on the cross for your sin, and through the resurrection from the dead. Worship team, would you come on up? Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask us to just get quiet before the Lord right now. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And I wonder if today is the day that you want to say, yeah, I want to follow this Jesus. This isn't an altar call. This isn't a come to the altar and and cry as we worship unless you want to. But this is a moment. This is an opportunity for you to respond to your God through his word and to say, I repent. I change direction. I no longer want to follow the ways of this world. I want to follow the Jesus of the Bible. So I want to give you that opportunity with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Would you just be quiet? Would you just talk to God? Maybe for some of you, you haven't talked to him in years. And maybe it's just a moment, an opportunity for you to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I want to turn back to you. For some of you, maybe you've never understood who he was, but you came here today and you came because someone close to you is doing a baptism. Man, they want you to repent. They want you to know that the Lord is, Jesus is king. And so in your heart, quietly, if you want to respond to Jesus, would you just tell him you're sorry? you just tell him, Lord, I want to repent and change direction. Would you come and lead me and may I follow you the rest of my life? I'm going to pass these bags and this is for people that call Church of the Valley their home church. This is how we're going to be doing offering this service. And so the bags are going to come by and when they get to the back, I'll grab them. But if you came prepared to give, I'd encourage you to give of your offering, your tithe or your offering to Church of the Valley if that's what you came prepared to do. If you didn't, just let it pass. It's not a big deal. But this is, some, this is an opportunity for those who call Jesus King and believe that this is their church where they grow spiritually to worship through offering and giving. And so, Father, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray for us as a people. Lord, I pray that you would use us and that we would have the faith to be demonstrated in our lives, to reach out to you when we need help, to trust you when we've messed up, to follow you even when it's not that cool. God, we thank you for Jesus and all that he means to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.